What rules did your family have growing up? Every, every family has rules. I have two brothers, a twin brother and an older brother, and they were both football players. So at any moment, you could be tackled in our house. Any moment. But there were two rules about this. One, you couldn't hit anyone in the nose because it feels horrible. Two, no hitting in the stomach after you eat. And again, we, <laughs> amen. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter when, how the tackle might come, you never know. But that one rule about not hitting in the stomach after you eat, we never broke. You'd never break that rule. And I know it's silly, but we never broke it. In my older brother's house to this day, he has three kids and his oldest just turned 13. But there's this rule in his house, no one is allowed to wake up before 7.15. Nope, doesn't matter. I don't, no, no sound in his house till 7.15. I wonder if you have this one. Christy, um, Christy grew up in a house. Her dad was in the military. Uh, early was on time and on time was late. Did any of you grow up in a house like that? Christy was blessed with a husband who genetically inherited his grandmother's ability to be slow at getting ready. My grandma was the kind of person where you would tell her what time things started, but you wouldn't tell her the real time. You'd tell her 30 minutes. You're like, oh, it's actually church starts at 1030. Uh, so she would be ready in time. And I got that full, uh, full um, inherited from that. And so if you guys think about it this week, you can pray for Christy as she has to deal with that. Every family has their own rules. But one of the strange things is uh, family rules are not transferable. So if I were to say, this never happened, I never did this, but if I went to my mom and said, hey, Tim, his parents let him stay up and watch all the baseball game, even if they're on the West Coast, so I think I should be able to stay up. Do you know what my mom would say? She'd say, well, that's good for Tim and his family, but does Tim live in this house? No, he does not. Or she'd say something like, but I just love you, which is her way of saying, I do not care what happens at anyone else's house. This is our family's rules, and that's what we do here. Every family has rules, and Israel is no different. The family of Israel has rules, and we are going to have to understand a few of them in order to stand, understand the passage today. So we are in Acts chapter 11 this week, which in my Bible, the one that I read the most often, is page 1003. But in order to understand the family rules, you have to go back to page 10. So I'm sorry for that. But we are going to go way back 4,000 years ago from now to southeastern Iraq. There is a family, and the, the leader of that family, his name is Terah. And he lived worshiping the local gods. And then one day, Yahweh, the true God, appears to one of Terah's son, Abram, and says this. This is what he said. Go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So out of the blue, God shows up to this family in southeastern Iraq and chose to speak to Abraham who as far as we know is no one special. There's no notes about he was an extra great husband or great friend or a great son. He likely worshiped the local gods just like his dad. And yet Yahweh, the God of the Bible, says, I want you. I want you and your family to represent me to the whole world. And if you do what I ask, I will bless you. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all over the world and through all time, people will be blessed through your family. 
this one man, Abraham, is invited to be a blessing to the whole world. And his family, the family of Abraham, which later we call the family and then the nation of Israel, is basically the story from page 10 to 1003 has been this one family story of how God is blessing those who bless them and curse those who curse them. But if you've, if you've read the story at all, you'll know that Israel wasn't always that great of a family. So kind of God along the way gave them some, some rules, but they didn't always keep them. You maybe know some of them as the Ten Commandments. Some of the other ones are around food and what they should do with their sexuality and how they should witness well to the nations. Jesus actually, who was from this family, summarized those rules that God had given this family like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Of note, particular, the rules. That was the rules for the family. Love God, love other people. But then in Leviticus 11, God gives specific directions about what things to eat and not eat, what things are clean and unclean. And that section closes with God saying this, Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Don't make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves to be holy because I'm holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord, and I brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. God had made this one family to be a counterculture, a flourishing counterculture in a world gone mad. One of the phrases repeated in the Old Testament in the book of Judges is that there was no king in the land and everyone just kept doing whatever was right in their own eyes. There were no rules and God says that will not lead to life. Abraham's family, the people of Israel, they have these moments, these seasons where they do what God asks and they're blessed and they flourish. He clears the way for them. They prosper and they grow. But then they have these long seasons these long periods of time of disobedience and just ignoring God altogether. And those times were so painful that the people of Israel had learned, you know what, it is better to live God's way than to live any other way. Because every time they tried to do what they wanted to do, it always led to exile or death. And now it had led to Roman occupation. Israel was set apart by God to be a blessing to the world. And wise, holy Jewish people kept the rules of God. So you can understand when they hear that Peter has gone and broken those rules, that they have something to say about it. This is how our passage begins this morning. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And we'll come back to that. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them. How could you? How could you do this, Peter? And Peter understands. He goes, I know, I know, but let me tell you the story. This is what happened. This is what happened. And then starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and a trance I saw a vision, which is only funny because when I read this the first time he was praying, I imagine he fell asleep and had a dream, but maybe he was awake and had a vision. Pause for just a second. Peter is in Joppa, He's been brought to Joppa for a reason. There were believers in Joppa who loved this woman. Her name was uh, Tabitha, and Tabitha had died. 
And they heard Peter was kind of close by. And they, all the friends come and, to Peter and say, come back here. Tabitha has died. Maybe you can do something about it. Could you imagine the pressure? If you showed up and you wanted me to come and lay hands on someone who had died with the hope that I would make them, I would heal them, that would be overwhelming to me. But Peter goes with them. And this happens. He sent everyone out of the room. And he got down on his knees and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He prayed and was given the power to raise the dead. Praise God. So he's in Joppa. And many people became believers in Jesus through this. But do you guys remember Joppa from any stories in the Bible? Do you remember Joppa from the story of Jonah? Because in the Bible, locations matter. Joppa is a special place. Here's how I learned the, the story of Jonah. So I grew up in the church, and I learned the story of Jonah as God appeared to Jonah— telling Jonah to go to the Ninevites to to preach a message of repentance to them. He was scared, so he runs away. There's a giant storm. He jumps, uh, he's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a great fish. After praying in there for a while, he gets thrown up onto the, the shore, and then he finally does what God asks. And that is part of the story. But what I learned in college when I read it for the first time from like chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 4. And I'll never forget reading chapter 4. I learned that this story is much more, uh, it's much darker, maybe more sinister than what I remember as a kid, which was an awesome story about a whale and throw up. Like, that was awesome when you were a kid. That's a good one. And, but this one actually, chapter 4 of Jonah says, Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites because God, he knew that God loved them and God would save them. And the Ninevites were his ethnic enemies. And he wanted, Jonah wanted God to kill his enemies. So he didn't go because he was afraid of failing or because he was afraid of death. He was actually afraid because he knew he'd be successful and he wanted them to die. In fact, the story of Jonah, Jonah sits up on a hill and just waits for God to kill them. And when they repent, he says, God, either kill them or kill me. And then the story has no resolution. We're just left like that. We have no idea. Did Jonah die on that hill? One more thing. Do you know Peter's name, Peter's dad's name? One more connection to the story of Jonah. It turns out in Matthew 16, we learn that Peter's dad's name is actually Jonah. So here we are again. In, in Joppa, the son of Jonah has a message of repentance for the nations. And we will see that he's invited to go to his ethnic enemies. Will he do it? What's going to happen? And Peter has a vision, and this is what happens. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds, and they all—I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. A couple things. In, in the Greek, this, this language for sheet is the same one for sail. So think a giant, giant sail-sized picnic blanket comes down from heaven, and it's got all the food and all the animals that you were not allowed to eat. And then a voice says, get up, sacrifice one of them to me, and eat. That word kill in the passage is the same word used about killing the Passover lamb. This is a sacrifice word. God says, sacrifice this unclean animal to me and then eat some. 
It's not just get up and eat, but it's sacrifice to me. And Peter's 2,000-year-old response is surely not. I've never done anything like this. My parents have never done anything like this. Their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents never did anything like this. I've never even touched an animal like that. And then this phrase, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times it happens. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then one more time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do you see the family rules are changing? Do you see that? The family rules are changing. What distinguishes God's family, the family of Abraham, is changing. The food that was clean has now been made clean. The purity boundaries around food have been broken down, and it's not just the food. The story goes on. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying, and the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. If you've been around the last couple weeks, I know people have been in and out, but you should go back and read these stories we've been going through because the Holy Spirit continues to invite uh, followers of Jesus to go strange places with people they don't know. I have this idea that, God, would you just give me a word? Give me a clear calling for my life. Tell me what to do. And if he would answer that prayer clearly, then I would feel better. I'd have this sense of control. And while I do think God speaks to us and a word from him is a gift, it in the Bible, at least, often leads to more confusion and strange situations. Uh, two weeks ago, we studied the story where Philip is said, hey, the Holy Spirit says to him, hey, just go run up there next to that uh, chariot and just see what happens. You're like, wait, you want me to, like, run next to a horse-drawn chariot and just see what happens? That's strange. Saul gets a word from God, and he's left blind in the street outside the city. Ananias is given a word from God, and he is, uh, if he follows, will be within arm's reach of his worst enemy. See, the Holy Spirit leads us, but he doesn't lead us into places of safety and control, but often into adventures of love. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. The man who had sent these messengers, his name is Cornelius, and we actually get the full story of this whole encounter in chapter 10. So if you want more details, go to chapter 10. And in the first two verses of chapter 10, Cornelius is described as a centurion who was known um, as the Italian in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those who were in need and prayed to God regularly. A centurion would have been a leader of 80 men, 80 soldiers, and they're stationed strategically at Caesarea, which is right on a trade route. And so they would be able to uh, take control or respond to crises in the Middle East whenever they happen, particularly to Israel. This is the, the harbor for the enemy and Cornelius is the commanding officer for the invading empire. This is not the right kind of person to get a word from God. And yet he was different. He's devout and God-fearing, it says. He prayed all the time and gave gifts to the poor. And the angel said this to him, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. See, an angel of God appeared to a Gentile, a Roman soldier, one of the oppressors, one of them, and said, I see your good works. I see how you pray all the time. 
Your gifts to people who can't repay them are beautiful to me. And as I was reading that for myself this week, I found my own spirit, my own soul tugged in that moment because I will occasionally get discouraged in prayer. I imagine many of you right now have been praying for things over and over and over again, and you wonder if God is even listening. There are moments where you wonder if, God, I'm doing good. I'm trying to do what is right. Does it even matter? Does anybody even care? And then I read that passage, and I felt like God was saying, be encouraged. I see that. Every time you pray for a grandchild or a coworker or a friend, God hears that from heaven. Every time a young mom gets up again in the middle of the night to love a child who has uh, no ability to say thank you nor have been taught about that yet, and do it again and do it again. Every time you text a friend just to check in on them and you think it doesn't matter, God in heaven sees that. One of the things we believe is that God is with us all the time and he sees everything we do. And usually for us, that's kind of bad news. When we say that, it's like God sees everything. You're like, not me on driving into church on Sunday morning or me trying to get the kids out of the house. Please, Lord, not men. It feels like bad news that God sees. But then think about it. From this text, at least, it says every good deed and every prayer. Every person who sits and prays the Lord's Prayer like we're going to pray, all of those things go up to heaven. Imagine what it's be like to God to hear all the prayers and see all the good deeds, all the acts of service, all the giving, and all the world all the time. For as hard as it would be God to see the evil, think how good it must be to see the beauty of creation and the beauty of his people. It is good to be God and see those things. So be encouraged. Cornelius sends for Peter, and Peter follows uh, the messengers back. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning, he says. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? The Holy Spirit came on Cornelius and his family, and they're not the family of Abraham, but Gentiles. The word Gentiles in Greek is the word ethne, or from ethnos, and it means nations, people groups, families. It turns out the purity boundary between food has been broken down, but also the purity boundary between people. The nations and the world are no longer separated from the family of God. Acts 10, 28, Peter says, um, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should no longer call anyone impure or unclean. And then this, Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God does not have favorites, not anymore. The story of the people of Israel was always that they were set apart to witness to the world that God does in fact love the whole world. God has never played favorites. And now those who belong to the family of God The rules no longer are what you eat or drink. The rules are, do you fear God and do what is good? If so, you can be accepted by God. I want to say a brief word on this language of do what is good or do what is right and skip to the last verse of this passage. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The people say, God has given the Gentiles the gift of repentance. 
Repentance is a gift from God. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of repentance. We, again, we think of repentance often as a conviction, as a, a, like a sorrowful thing. You're like, ah, oh, I felt convicted. I felt sorry for that. But repentance is not primarily a feeling word. It's a thinking word. The Gentiles have come to see with their own eyes that there is something way bigger going on in the world than what they thought. There is a God. Jesus is who he says he is. There is something more powerful than even death in the world. They have come to know the truth, and that truth leads them to a very different life. God is real. I can love him. He can love me. I can love my enemies. I now know there's a better way to live in the world. To come to reality, to see things as they actually are, leads us to different actions. To fear God and do what is right. And then these final words. Uh, Paul's, or Peter's final answer to the criticism was this. If God gave them the same gift he gave us who, uh, who believed in Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in the way? He says, what, what could I say to that? It was God. Blame God. What could I do? The challenge for us this week, and I was thinking about that in preparing for this, how do we apply this to our lives? We don't have 2,000 years of God-given rules that we're trying to overcome, and it's not an easy lesson to learn. We'll learn later that Paul actually has to correct Peter because Peter's still trying to eat with the, uh, eat with the circumcised people, and he ends up dividing the church again. This is not an easy thing to do, and there's no parallel for us. But if there was, I was thinking about it might be around what we call at Corinth the essentials and the non-essentials. That's, uh, Bob, I think, introduced uh, this language to the church before I got here 18 years ago, that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And what's essential for us is that we believe Jesus is who he said he is, did what he said he did. And we confess the version of reality that is in line with the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to do again in just moments. And we say those things are the core of what it means to be a Christian. But there are a whole lot of things that the Bible talks about that we, um, that we, people who love Jesus disagree about. And there are things the Bible doesn't talk about at all. There are issues like alcohol use and women's roles in ministry. There are worship styles, church discipline, sexuality, politics, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what people wear to church. We could go on. And some of these issues, again, they're not in Scripture. Some are, and there's a disagreement about it. One of, the, one of the things I'm hopeful for our church as we go on, we can have firmly held convictions and matters of conscience, but then we can be humble enough for everything that's not Jesus and the Apostles' Creed to say what Bob has been teaching us to say, I could be wrong. But we're not wrong about Jesus and the Apostles' Creed, and we hold tightly to that. But these disagreements can make it hard to be a family. Just a moment of reflection, what of these non-essential things, something I listed or something else, is the most difficult for you? And maybe it's if someone were to walk into the sanctuary for 11 o'clock church and they were in a t-shirt and shorts, you might, that'd be really hard for you and very distracting. Or whatever your thing is. And I ask you to bring that to mind to just say, for 2,000 years it's been hard to be a part of the church. Because the essentials are so... Small. It is not new to have disagreements about worship, and God plays no favorites. God does not prefer hymns to worship songs or worship songs to hymns. The problem with that is, though, God, we have favorites. You don't have favorites, but we certainly do. 
And from the beginning, followers of Jesus had had to work that out together. But if God could bring the Jews and the Gentiles together, he can certainly bring us and our disagreements into a family and grow us into something beautiful. To recap, if you're discouraged in your prayer and your giving and your doing of good, keep going. Be encouraged. God sees you from heaven, and it is a fragrant offering to him. Don't be surprised if this week the Holy Spirit leads you not to clarity and control, but into adventures in love. Again, God does not play favorites. He accepts those who fear him and do what is good. So pray for someone who disagrees with you. Celebrate that you who were once outsiders, we who were once outsiders, Gentiles, have been accepted by God. We are his family. Amen.